0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. On Sunday, the 21st November 1920, 14 people who went to watch a football match at Copark Park would not return home. The events that day are known to us as Bloody Sunday was the Cope Park Massacre. The mark the centenary of the seminal moment in Irish and GA history. The GGE and the Sunday's Game have recorded a two part special interview with Sunday Times GA correspondent and author of The Bloody Field, Michael Foley. I'm delighted to have on to the Sunday's Game today an award winning sports writer, a GA writer with the Sunday Times, and author of The Bloody Field. Michael Foley, uh, welcome on to the show. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, Alan. Thanks so many for having me on. <laughs> The, when I was home for Congress uh, in February, uh, John Horan spoke uh, about the Bloody Sunday centenary. It's something that touches us all. Of course, it's it's made even more, um, let's just say more famous by the scene in Michael Collins, the movie, but it's deeper than that. And of course the GA are running a small little vignettes about it as well, that is kind of identifying all the people involved. Can you just give us a bit of a background on it about the book uh, to start off with and about Bloody Sunday, the 21st November, 1920? Well, I mean, in terms of,
1: of, of Bloody Sunday itself, I suppose that morning started off with, uh, with Michael Collins's IRA squads and a, a kind of an expanded version of the squad um, visiting different targets across the city uh, and, and killing alleged spies and agents. Uh, in the end, uh, they killed 14 people And that was the beginning of Bloody Sunday, if you like, on the day. In the afternoon then, a kind of combined force of police with military went to Crow Park. The military surrounded the stadium. And the idea was that the police were to go in and perform a search operation. But what had happened in practice, the police, when they got there, they jumped out of the trucks and opened fire on the crowd. And they killed 14 people in the end uh, in Crow Park that afternoon. So obviously, Bloody Sunday was the most violent day and, and, and the day of the greatest loss of life in the war of independence at that stage. And it had a huge impact uh, in terms of Irish history, in terms of the GA, in terms of how we see Croke Park, all those, all those things. Um, so for me, like coming to the book, I was, I worked for the Sunday Times and back in 20, 2007, I was there at Croke Park covering Ireland, England, the rugby game, the famous Six Nations game. And there's obviously been a lot of talk coming up to that about the, I suppose the the importance if you like of England playing there um, and, and, and the resonance of them playing there given what had happened on Bloody Sunday and an English team and God save the Queen and all this stuff so there's a lot of coverage, but what I noticed in the coverage was that there was there was gaps and there was kind of things that didn't quite match up. So, for example, even just very simple things like the names of the 14 people. Um, in a lot of places, in a lot of cases, the names were different. You know, you might get one version in one place and another version elsewhere. The number of people who were killed seemed to range anywhere from 12 to 16. So things like that, it kind of struck me as odd that something that we all think we kind of know something about, we didn't maybe actually know even the basics, um, or we weren't sure of the basics. So that was sort of the beginning. Uh, It was another few years before I actually got up and running with the book itself. I started it in 2011. I feel like that was really when, when the research kind of started in earnest and the original book came out in 2014. And in the six years since then, up to 2014, I had kind of contacted or made contact with some families, but their names had been in the contacts and the connections had been lost so much that it was really after the book came out, contacts began to be made. Um, of the 14 victims eight of them were in unmarked graves in 2014 so through the bloody sunday graves project which kind of emerged in from 2015 on in conjunction with the ga helping the families if they wanted to put up a headstone we got to meet more families that way and it just kind of evolved that way so by by the time the centenary this year came around you know it was nice to be able to go back to the book and kind of just update some of it change some of it um, add in more information particularly about the victims the kind of people they were and, and the lives they lived. And also the legacy and the impact of Bloody Sunday afterwards, because you know, fourteen people get killed in Crow Park on that day. But, you know, Bloody Sunday didn't end on Bloody Sunday. It went on through people's lives for, for generations.
0: What's the biggest impact in you know in, in your research and your point of view of Bloody Sunday in the in the immediate aftermath?
1: For for me myself, is it? Yeah. Or in general. In, uh, well, for, for me myself
0: in general, yeah.
1: It's it's, it's I, t- I think it's all around victims for me because when I got when I came to the the idea of doing the book and this to to the topic, it really was just to try and fill gaps. I felt that there must be a story in here. Of course, I, I kind of felt that you know it'll be, it this is a human story above all else. Um, I wanted to I always wanted to take, to try and get away from the politics of it and get away from the sort of. The, the nationalistic aspect of it and, and that side of it because I, I really felt that to get to the truth of Bloody Sunday, you really needed to know the people and understand who they were and, and, and like a lot of things in Irish history, there's not a lot of black and white. There's always shades of grey and that's Irish history, all history. And I wanted to kind of explore those shades of grey. Um, but it really was for me and, and probably in general as well, actually, I, th- I think accessing those victim stories, like I can remember going to London in 20, I think it was the end of 2011, and I was going to the museum in Kew, where there's a like, when you go in and you, they have a little Bloody Sunday box. It's like a little cardboard box with the map that they used of Crow Park to to plan the operation, with the actual order itself that was sent, with the two copies, the original copies of the inquiries that were held afterwards, there was two inquiries held, so the official reports, and then other little bits and pieces Um, related to Bloody Sunday, so I went to see that, but I also went to look at some old British newspapers and stuff, because 2011, it's funny how much has changed, I mean, online, there wasn't as much online, even 2011, so you kind of had to go, so anyway, went to the newspaper library, and I'm flicking through these old tabloid newspapers and broadsheet newspapers, British, just looking for any sort of reference at all, in the, in the months afterwards um, to Bloody Sunday. And I come across these pictures of the victims. So you've I remember seeing Jane Boyle and I saw James Matthews and I saw Jerome O'Leary, the 10-year-old, who was the youngest. So I, you're looking at them and suddenly these people are made real. It's like anything in life, you know, when you can put a face to the name, it, it you know, it, it changes your relationship with that person, I think. So that was a huge, that was, that was the beginning of something. And... As I said, it was eight people in unmarked graves. And last November for the anniversary, we unveiled three graves uh, for Michael Feary, Patrick O'Dowd, and Jerome O'Leary. When it, when it came to organising Jerome's grave, he has no family left. The family line ran out, as far as we're aware. And, and with the best will in the world, we've done as much as we can to try and corroborate that. And it doesn't seem like there's anybody left. So when it came to actually organising the grave, Kean Murphy in the GA, who's been just a fantastic kind of supporter and man there, a man on point, if you like, to try and make all this happen. Um, Keen contacted me and said, listen, would you just confirm Jerome's name, his address, his age? Basically do the same thing as you would if you were burying a relative and you you were asked to kind of take care of the headstone. Mm -hmm. And it was a small thing on on that. And he said, look, also, could you say a few words at the grave? Because all the other families would have people to say what Jerome had known. So like it was one of those it was a small thing to do but it was one of those things that it just drove home to me personally like where we've began in a newspaper library looking at this this child's face to standing by his grave and trying to to be there for him and I say that not as not as someone who feels the kind of emotion you would as a family member for someone who passed away I wouldn't I wouldn't that's a different that's a different emotion than that's for the families you know to feel and to to hold but for me just to be able to be there for Jerome you know the youngest one who had no one left it was a very small thing I could do but I can it's one of the you know I mean for as long as I live it will be one of the proudest things one of the the most humbling things that I I was ever asked to do Um, I'll never forget it you know
0: it's one of those things, I mean, it's, it's, it's emotional just hearing you speak about it because it's one of those things that like, you know, my, my son's 11, Jerome was 10. He, he yeah. went into a match. Yeah. How like, many times have I like taken... I was
1: 10. Like, yeah, sorry, sorry for cutting across Alan, but yeah. on that, yeah, how many times have you taken take, 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 take your son to a match? My, like I was 10 when I went to my first game in Crow Park, And I often say, you know, people think it's 100 years ago. How, how is Bloody Sunday relevant to me now? How is Bloody Sunday relevant to anybody in the GA, should we have enough to be worrying about, you know? Yes. But it just says them, look, we were all 10 and you, you you, know what it was like going to a game and the excitement and the, the whole, the whole build-up around going and you, you know, it would have been the same for Jerome 10, William Robinson 11, John William Scott 14. We all, we felt all those emotions and we also felt emotions as, you know, I'm a little bit, I've gone past my 20s, I'm well gone past them, now I'm nearly lapping around again. But like you know, we all went to matches in our twenties, meeting up with our friends and having a right good day out. And those people were there too. There was a fiance, there was, there was a, a lady with her fiance there due to be married, trying to get away from as, as 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 their relative says, trying to get away from the madness at home, five, four or five days out from their wedding. You know, you see you see couples now going to going going, going to matches, and it's almost like sometimes they're in their own little bubble. You know, it's their, this is their time now. They're away and they're at a game, you know, then you see? I mean there was people who died in Crow Park 57 year old Patrick O'Dowd for example you know fellas following the tradition of years and years the things that their their fathers and mothers brought them to matches or the, you know they, they grew up with the GA and they grew up with the matches and they were still going later on in their lives the same as we are now we, we'll always be going that's where the connection of Bloody Sunday is they're no different to us they're, they went with exactly the same intentions and feelings and emotions as we would go to the Crow Park and that's where the connection is
0: it's something that uh, John Horne, when he was on, was he, he spoke about it. And we, we kind of mentioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hillsborough, because it was it was around the time of Hillsborough, and we, he, we were speaking about it. And he remembers it, because they were coming back from play it would have been a Leinster School semi-final, <clears throat> and sitting, watching it, and what, you know, watching what's happened. And I remember coming back from, from a match and racing home, grabbing a bar of chocolate, popcorn, and it was in a 7-Eleven down the road from our house, and a Pepsi coming in to watch the match. And then the first reaction that I had was hooliganism. You know, it's, they're, they're acting up again, Liverpool again. And then as things went on, it, was, it got very, very clear there wasn't that. How long did it take for Bloody Sunday, the events in Crow Park, to start to reach out around Dublin and Ireland?
1: It, almost immediately, really um like if you think of the, the speed at which the news of the events in the morning and obviously look we're you know it goes without saying we're in a, a entirely different era of communications in 1920 but we said by the mid-morning for example people on the trams people in the city would have been aware of what had happened and on the morning they wouldn't have known the nitty-gritty details but they would have known that the ira had attacked a lot of british spies and you know you, you had everything from the whole the whole intelligence network called british intelligence network has been done in to sort of, you know, the IRA are going to attack everybody now, who no one's safe. So within the morning, that's how quickly that, that spread. In the same way, in the afternoon, like the, the city was already locked down anyway. News would have, would have traveled very fast. Obviously, the hospitals would have been thronged with the wounded, the dying, the dead. So word would have come out that way. Um, in Dublin Castle itself, they were very quick to start trying to control the narrative, if you like, in modern, in modern parlance. Um, they, had a, they released three statements that night um, trying to get hold of the story. And essentially the story that the British authorities put out there was that the police were responding to firing that came from either IRA pickets around the ground or inside the ground. But essentially, the the key point was they were fired on first. A lot of the establishment newspapers, if you like, The Times, for example, would have carried that verbatim the following day, including the detail that they found 30 revolvers in, in Crow Park, which was entirely discredited. In reality, they found nothing. They didn't even find a shred of a piece of a notepad um, to say that uh, something to do with what the killings in the morning, because this was the whole idea, was that they would go to Cro Park. They were, the British would have been under the impression and uh, would have had the sense that the Dublin Brigade of the IRA wouldn't have been uh, big enough to carry out this kind of operation. So with Dublin and Tipperary playing in a game, the War of Independence in Tipperary was a lot hotter in terms of actual physical combat than Dublin City would have been at that time. So their thinking was, it's very strong chance that IRA people came up from the country disguised as supporters and things like that. And we'd find them at the game. That was the kind of the logic. But of course, I mean, the reality of the situation would have been that the minute that, you know, crossly tenders and things arrived in the vicinity of Crow Park, people were going to run away. So, I mean, the idea of an orderly search operation was just completely implausible. But back to your original question, like it, it would have it would have moved to, So the reports were out quickly. The newspapers picked up on it very quickly the following day, obviously. I think in terms of... If you look at the Irish coverage of it, it's very much that this was slaughter at Crow Park. if you look at the British coverage, the coverage has weighted much more towards the killings in the morning. So Crow Park is mentioned, but and we do get these lines about the the horror of a woman being killed at a game and the horror of children being killed, and one boy apparently possibly being bayoneted to death because the wound on his chest was so bad. that was John William Scott, he was fourteen years of age, he was actually hit by a ricochet bullet but it, it there was questions in the House of Commons afterwards about this boy uh, who apparently had been bayoneted to death. And you had questions in Parliament. But again, the focus was on the morning, the morning killings. Joe Devlin, an MP for West Belfast, an Irish Party MP, did stand up in the afternoon and ask the question, you know, what about the people in Crow Park? What news have we of them? And it actually provoked a reaction. Uh, an MP that was sitting down in front of him turned around and grabbed Devlin pulled them down into the, the seats in front and there was a brawl. They had to suspend the, the, the chamber and, and restore order at that point. And when he came back, Hammer Greenwood, who was the chief secretary in Northern Ireland, gave the kind of boilerplate response as it would become that police were fired on, they fired back, revolvers were found, etc. etc. So I suppose over the, over the, the longer term, then Bloody Sunday did become, and the Crow Park aspect did become a symbol of, Britain's inability to govern in Ireland, that the policies they were pursuing were not working, a change needed to happen. The immediate change was that the British took a, a much more hard-line approach. But it did feed into that, um, feed into the fuel, I suppose, that eventually got us to a truce uh, seven months later. Uh, but it was, uh, it, that took time.
0: I, think, I I know it sounds enough to say, there's always events that happen that are like a, a catalyst or, I the word, a turning point. Do you think that Bloody Sunday was a turning point that led to the cessation of hostilities and to the establishment of you know, an Irish state? I d- it did in the long run.
1: But I think in the short term, it took time. I mean, the British reaction to Bloody Sunday, and again, they weren't reacting to the Croke Park killings. They were reacting to the Morning killings more so, was to impose martial law in Munster, And then at a later date on three more counties in Leinster, it was to beef up their intelligence operation again and go after the IRA as hard as they could. So, I mean, a week later on the 28th of November, you had the massacre of of a convoy of auxiliaries down in Kilmichael uh, on a lonely road in West Cork. And this mayhem continued for seven months. So it wasn't like it was just a kind of, oh my God, this can't go on. And you had, as I mentioned before there, you had these military inquiries that occurred as well. And the two reports that came out said that yes, the firing at Crow Park was in excess of what was necessary, but it was provoked by firing from inside the ground, and then those two inquiries were sealed up, and we didn't see them again until 1999. So you still had this idea that the British had that they could, they weren't going to, they weren't going to turn this into a military war. It was a police war. We're going to fight it on our terms as far as we can. But eventually, I think the sheer scale of the violence just cre- almost it did create a kind of a situation where something had to give. And eventually the moderates got in there and, and there was enough leeway to say, okay, let's just have a truce. Let's just truce, let's pause. July 21, let's just, things stopped. So yes, it did. It, it certainly did. It was part of the catalyst towards truce and eventually independence. From a GA point of view, it's, it had an even more profound effect, I suppose, than the GA directly because, I mean, you know, Croke Park was their home for seven years at that stage. The talk about moving from Crowe Park hadn't entirely gone. I mean, Crowe Park, a, few, a couple of years before 1920, was a terrible place to go and watch a game. I mean, it was just horrible. I mean, the facilities were non-existent. I mean, it was just awful. But now this was martyr's ground. Now the GA could make the point, and it was very important in the early days of the Free State, that a player had been killed by Crown forces on this ground. They didn't go to Lansdowne Road. They didn't go to Dalymount Park. They came here. And that sort of political aspect wrapped itself around the Bloody Sunday story for many years. And personally, I think it did two things. Number one, it kind of sandpapered the other victims out of it a bit. And it also, it also made it harder in a way for the GA to actually access the trauma of what happened. It's almost like post-traumatic stress or something. It was like the GA weren't ready to process it. I mean, there was no, there really was very minimal um, sort of uh, messages of condolence. The Hogan stand was named after Michael Hogan in 1926. Um, There was annual commemoration games between Dublin and Tipperary all the way up to the 70s. But the connection to the other 13 victims was really lost down the years. And it was left to the families to curate their own stories. And I don't say that in a negative, I don't say that in an accusatory way towards the GA. I kind of say it in a way that I think just, they just weren't ready they just, they just weren't ready and then time passes and the politics evolves and other things get in the way and it's only now it's only really now in, you know, in the last five to six years with the, again I go back to the, that Graves project was huge in terms of re-establishing those links and allowing the GA another way into looking at Bloody Sunday and a way of processing what happened I mean it's often said now you'll hear John Horne and others saying you know 14 people went to a game and never came home and they're our, our people, they're the GA's people, and the GA now feel, and I'm not saying they didn't before, but they will say it now that they feel a duty of care to those people. How can you, how can you offer a duty of care to people who died 100 years ago? Well, you can do it through things like gravestones, by contact with the families, and by keeping them front and centre when it comes to commemoration.
0: As the whistle blows, to end the first of our two part special interview with Michael Foley to commemorate Bloody Sunday. We hope you join us next week on this Sunday's game for part two.